Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. It is so good to see you. And if you are visiting with us, we are particularly delighted to have you with us. Uh, Yes, this is a special Sunday. It is a Sunday when Christians all across the world in particular remember the greatest news in the universe, that God who became man and laid down his life and then took it up again and rose victoriously over sin, death, and the grave is risen. But I want to tell you that this news that we have sung about and read about and prayed about and in just a moment I will preach about is the same news that we celebrate every Sunday here at Crosspoint. So really, other than some festive colors and um, a little bit more juice on the stage, (laughs) this is just what we do every Sunday. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're not used to looking up Uh, passages in the Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles that's in the rack in front of you. In fact, I would encourage you to follow along. We're going to have all the scriptures up on the screen, but I think you would be particularly helped if you actually had a copy of God's Word in front of you, and if you followed along with us. And if you do not own a Bible, you are welcome to take that Bible and keep it as our gift to you. Just take it with you and read it, and we do pray that uh, God will use His Holy Word to, to do wonderful things for your soul and to show you the work of His Son. And we hope that you'll come back and that you'll read God's Word. If you're not used to looking up uh, passages in the Bible, you can find the passage that we're going to read today. It's in the New, T- New Testament, a letter to a group of people called the Ephesians, uh, a church in the city of Ephesus. You can find it on page 765 or 976 of the Bible that you have in front of you. Both of them are the same edition or same version of the Bible, just two different copies with different page numbers. Well, uh, we have just finished a long sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're going to look at just this one passage in Ephesians 2, and the reason that I chose this passage on Easter Sunday in particular is because I think that these 10 verses that in just a moment I'm going to read and then we're going to work back through is one of the most clear and concise and straightforward explanations of the whole message of the Bible in all of the Bible itself. In fact, I think these 10 verses are kind of like a mini Bible in themselves. They are the very essence of what the Bible is saying to us from the beginning to the end. And so we're going to look and stare at this verse and we're going to consider what God would say to us this morning. Now, I want to give you my outline up front. We're going to look at this verse. I'm going to read it. But I want you to know where we're going with this text, just to give you a little bit of uh, handles to hold on to. We're going to look at the disease that I think all humanity shares. We're going to look at the cure, in fact, the only cure for the disease that all of us are stricken with. Then we're going to look at the means, the means by which God administers that cure to our souls, and then the grand and great and glorious purpose of God in all of this. So the disease, the cure, the means, and the purpose. Let me read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll pray and work our way back through it. 
This is Paul writing a letter to a group of people at a city called Ephesus, still a modern-day city in, in, in Turkey, the area of near Turkey and Greece. A group of people very likely much, much smaller than the group of people in this room. A group of people that were primarily uh, just Gentile pagans worshiping their own gods. And then Paul, in his missionary journeys through the book of Acts, brings the gospel to this city of Ephesus. And a group of people hear what Paul was saying about Jesus, and they turn from trusting in themselves, and they put their hope and faith in Christ. And now he's writing a letter back to this church that he had started uh, before, several years before. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, before I pray, let me tell you, I'll just be very clear about my aim, my goal this morning. I think that we've got people from different cultures. Uh, We have people from different parts of our country. We have people from different ethnicities. Uh, We have people that have different tastes in barbecue in this very room right now. But I think that there are really only two types of people gathered here today. There are those of you who are trusting in Christ that what we just read has happened to you. And there are those of you that are not yet trusting in Christ. If you are not yet trusting in Christ, I am so thankful that you're here And the words that I'm going to share with you in a minute uh, may seem to rattle your cage a little bit. In fact, they may seem to confront presuppositions and beliefs that you have held previously. And I want you to know I realize that. And in fact, I have planned to do that graciously but clearly. I think that the words that we just read and the things that we will talk about in a moment are, in fact, the most important news in the entire universe. So I want you to hear them, and I want you to hear them clearly. 
And I want you to be brought to a point where you must wrestle with these words, where you must make a decision to either believe them or to not believe them. If you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, you will hear nothing new this morning. In fact, you've probably figured that out if you're part of Crosspoint. It's the same pitch right down the middle of the plate every Sunday, isn't it? I got one note. That's all I can play. I got one drum. That's all we beat. But I want you, as you hear these words, I want your heart to be stirred. I want your affections to be warmed. I want you to be humbled afresh at the goodness of God in the gospel. And I want it to produce in you a zeal for the glory of God in your life. So with that, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us with these things. Father, as we think through this text on this resurrection day, we are so grateful. Thank you for the beautiful combination of voices that we have just heard and sang with. Thank you for the truths that we have sung about and the scriptures we've heard read and the prayers offered. Thank you for the children and the people serving our children in the children's classrooms behind us. We pray for your blessing on them and patience for the volunteers and we pray for open ears and hearts for children to hear about Jesus. And we pray now as we look through your holy word that you inspired, that you breathed out, that is completely true and without error, and therefore because it's from you with all authority, Lord, I pray that we would bow our knee to your beautiful truth, to your Son, that Christians would be encouraged and convicted and stirred and unbelievers would be changed and made into your people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the disease that we are all infected with. Last year, uh, on one of those channels that, I don't know the number, like TNT or TBS or one of those kind of off channels, I got hooked on a show called The Last Ship. And this, basically the plot of this show is that the whole world has been infected with a deadly virus, right? And it's spreading across the whole population of the world. And there is this Navy ship that is out at sea, and on this Navy ship is this scientist who has, is working on, and in fact has found the only cure for this deadly pandemic, this disease that is, that, is, that is killing the whole population of the earth. And so the whole plot of the show is about this last ship, this Navy ship that needs to get this cure to the population of the world. Now, of course, there's much more to it. There's people for various reasons that are trying to stop the cure from getting to the people that are infected. In fact, really, I started to think about it. It was the one time that I've actually rooted for the Navy. Like, I was on the Navy side. Like, yes! And if that doesn't make any sense to you, I am a graduate of the United States Military Academy where my alma mater, Army, has lost to Navy for 14 long years in a row. It has been a dreadful, dreadful decade and a half. But this next, next year, we're going to win. We're going to beat Navy, finally. And the Apostle Paul is telling us here that, that mankind, all of us, notice the words he 
says, he says you. He's speaking to the Ephesian church, but he doesn't just limit it to them. At the end of verse 3, he says that we all are like this. We are all by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So immediately we understand that Paul is not limiting his scope to his audience that he wrote to in the first century there. He is broadening it out to all people, Americans and South Americans and Europeans and Arabs and Africans and Asians and and Latinos, everybody, all of mankind, Jew and Gentile, are infected with this disease, and this disease is sin. It's this It's this nature that we have where we have rebelled against our Creator, God. And this rebellion that exists in us has caused us to be, he says there in verse 1, dead. Now, what does it mean to be dead in sin? Well, he mentions it there in verse 2. He says that we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is a reference to Satan, to our enemy, the evil one, who is real, who exists, who in another verse in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, says that our enemy, Satan, prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Evil is not just some impersonal force. It is a real, a real devil who is opposed to the things of God. And when we are by our nature dead in sin, we are following. We may not feel like it. Now, nobody woke up this morning and said, well, I feel like I'm following the the prince of the power of the air, this evil one. But do you notice what Paul does here? He speaks in much stronger terms than we naturally think. And he says that, that people who are not trusting in Jesus yet are, in fact, following the course of this world dominated by the evil one. But it's not just what's outside of us, it's what's inside of us. Notice then what he says in verse 3. He says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and we are carrying out the desires of the body. So the problem isn't just out here that we're just kind of getting caught up with the flow, sort of like getting caught in the riptide, being dragged along by a, a, an evil down a fallen world, there's something inside of us and what is inside of us and what is outside of us conspires and it brings about this state that Paul calls this disease called sin that we are dead in. And so then the result clearly is that all humanity, and again, we don't necessarily automatically or by default think in these terms, but it's clear in this text that Paul is saying that all humanity, by nature, by culture, by choice, we are all enslaved. We are all born into captivity, so to speak. In fact, that's Paul's language later on in the book of Romans. He classifies all humanity as you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. And in fact, when he writes several of his other New Testament letters, he considers himself once a slave of sin but now a slave of Christ. And so Paul is clearly telling us here that all of us are infected with this disease by our nature. It's the way we are born. Now you may have a few objections to this if you haven't heard this before, and, and I understand. One of your objections may be, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Brad. I'm not that bad of a guy. Come on, man. This is Easter morning. Somebody invited me. Thanks, man. This has been cheerful. I'm not coming back here again, right? 
Well, let's just kind of think about that objection that you may have that you're not that bad. Well, in one sense, I agree with you. You, you, You're kind of partially right. We're not as bad as we could be. You could be worse if you're still in your sin, not trusting in Christ. And it's true. Not everybody in this world who does bad things is as bad as some people are. That may be true. But if, think about this for a moment... If you came into this room and you have this sort of general notion that there is a creator, a God, that we are accountable to, and you do have this general sense that there's an afterlife, and that people that are basically relatively good get to go and be with God, which seems to be a kind of a place of bliss, and people that are relatively bad don't get to be with God, but are somehow punished in some way, I think most people sort of have that default mentality, and you may think, well, it's kind of based on whether or not you are basically good that you get to be with God forever and if you're basically bad you don't get to be with God forever and so that's kind of how humanity breaks down that's the way most people think but let me ask you a question about that default line of thinking that you may have when is good good enough and how bad do you have to be to not be part of the good group right and isn't it convenient at least this is the way my heart works When I'm sort of judging myself to other people, against other people, I always sort of at least sort of, I mean, I kind of want to be humble about it, you know, so I'm not the greatest guy in the world, but I sort of draw the line just right next to me, so I'm kind of still over here in the good group, right? And all of these bad people over here, but I'm always on the right side of the line. But who's drawing the line? Who gets to determine that? Well, what Paul is saying here is there is no line. We are all on the wrong side of it by nature and by choice. We are all, the best of us and the worst of us, all have this disease in common that makes us completely unable to do anything that would commend us to a holy God, right? Now, some of you may be better than others, and let's just admit that's the case, right? Right? I mean, some of you... Like, well, let, okay, somebody's like, yeah, praise God, I know, I know. <laughs> but even the best among us, even the strongest among us, would you take your strength and your goodness and stand before a holy God and say, you know, God, I'm better than all these poor schleps behind me. I think you should accept me because of what I got going on right here. No, none of us would, right? I'm hammering home the point, friends, that no, you're not as bad as we, we're not as bad as we could be, but none of us are good enough to stand before a holy God and say, I deserve to be with you forever. So that may be your first objection. Your second objection may be, you know, Brad, why would God, why would God allow all of this? I mean, if he's all powerful, why would he even allow a fall to happen and Friends, I, I, I want to sympathize with that question. I think it's the most challenging question of all. And I think that to some degree it is an unanswerable question this side of eternity. But I just want to point you in a direction that I think the Bible says that God, who is sovereign over all, that even our fault, even our rebellion has not snuck up on God 
And he, in some way that we can't fully piece together in our finite minds, has even allowed it so that he could display the glory of his grace by saving a great multitude of disease-infected people out of their dead state and cure them through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, for the display of his glory. And you may say, wait a minute, God's not allowed to do that yet. Friends, yes, he is. He's God. He's God. So the implications of this before we move on to the cure is that we are all in the same predicament in our birth by our nature. Now you may be intimidated by people sitting around you. Maybe it was very difficult for you to come into this room this morning and you feel like our church folks think that, listen, uh, there may be somebody that uh, is, you know, kind of snooty around you, but let me tell you something. They ain't got nothing on you. Right? We are all in the same predicament. The second thing is, is a clear implication of this. If we are all on this one side of the line, if we are all infected with the disease, if we are all completely unable to do anything about it, if there's nothing in us that will commend us to God, in fact, if we are dead... And what does it mean to be dead? It means unable to change anything in and of yourself. Then it means that we need something to happen to us from the outside. There's nothing that we can muster up within us because we are dead. Dead people can't do stuff, right? So I want to, I know this is depressing. You're like, man, thanks for inviting me. This cat is killing me. But before we can understand how glorious the good news is, we have to understand why it's so good. Because what becomes before the good news is the reality of where we are before God opens our hearts and makes us alive. And so we are all dead and we need something to happen to us. In other words, we are born as prisoners sentenced to death row awaiting God's final judgment. All mankind, friends, this is humbling. Now to verse 4 and the cure. And the two sweetest words maybe in all of the Bible. But God. See, if, if this passage ended at verse 3, it would be bad. But it doesn't. It doesn't end at verse 3. Verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now let's, let's stare at these few verses here and look at the beauty of the cure to the disease. Notice there in verse 4, notice God's motivation in bringing this cure that we'll, we'll, we'll break down in a second. God's motivation in bringing dead people back to life spiritually is not because of anything good in them. It says he is rich in mercy. And then it says because 
of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins. Friends, this is a huge relief because God opens hearts not because there's anything commendable in a dead heart to make it worthy of loving, right? Because imagine, imagine all of us. We're like in a graveyard, spiritually dead, underneath the ground. And we're leaning over, looking to the people next to us, which we can't do, by the way, because we're dead. But let's just go along with the analogy. You know, we're both dead here, but I stink less than that guy in the grave next to me. I would be a better candidate, God. Pick me. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? Do you see the motivation for God doing anything to bring the cure? It's not because of anything good in us. It's solely because of something within God, His mercy and His love. That is a huge relief. Because now I know that God's grace is free to go wherever God wills. It's not bound to anything good in me. Because if it were, he would never pick me or you or anybody else. So God's motivation is within himself, not within us. And then notice in verse 5, this is the heart of the text. Notice how God saves. Verse 5, even when we were Dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So those six words there, made us alive together with Christ. There is more truth packed into those six words. It would take us months to just uncover and Peel apart all that is in there. To understand it, though, to understand what God is saying there to us, we must understand who Christ is and what he has done. So he is saying that he makes us alive in Christ. So who is Christ? Well, Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son. The Bible tells us that God is one, but yet mysteriously and in a way that we cannot Completely pieced together, God is three persons in one. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. And Jesus is the eternal, pre-existent Son of God, God the Son, fully God and fully man. And the Bible tells us in other places, like in Ephesians 1, that God has had a plan from the beginning. He says that human sin and rebellion and all the darkness that exists in our hearts and out in this world did not sneak up on God. In fact, the Bible says, as I mentioned in Ephesians 1, that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have had a plan for redemption from the beginning. It says in Ephesians 1, in fact, we just sang about it in that second song, Grace Alone. It says that God has predestined us for adoption, in other words, to be made alive before the foundations of the earth. So that means that Sin in the garden of Eden when Adam, uh, when Adam and Eve fell and sin in our own lives that has caused us to be dead did not sneak up on God. Before God even created the world that fell and humanity that rebelled against him, God had a plan to bring salvation of the very creation before he even created it and before it fell. 
And that plan was to send his son Jesus, God the Son, to become a man and to lay down his life on the cross to defeat sin and death, to absorb the punishment of God the Father and raise again in victory over it. And Jesus then is the perfect God-man who becomes a man, lives a perfect life, dies a sacrificial death on the cross and rises again in victory over it. So a little bit more about who Jesus is. He is fully man. But yet, he's not sinful like we are. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18 about Jesus that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That word propitiation means that Jesus became a sacrifice to bear the punishment and the wrath of God the Father for us. So he had to make propitiation or sacrifice for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help help those who are being tempted. Two chapters over in Hebrews 14, it amplifies that fact. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so we see that Jesus is fully man, enduring everything that we have endured, but where all of us have fallen and are infected with the disease, Jesus has resisted that sin and is a man, but a fully righteous, in fact, a sinless man. And this causes Paul to write to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. But God, but Jesus is not just man. He is also God. He's God the Son. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle John, speaking about Jesus, says, In the beginning was the Word. And this is a, a Greek mindset. They were... They were caught up in this idea of word and logic and logos. And John is trying to identify with them and show them that this, that this wisdom, this, this, this personification of all that is true is in fact Jesus in the flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word, speaking of Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this is speaking about the divinity of Jesus and the Father. He was in the beginning with God. So the Son was with the Father. Verse 3, about Jesus, God the Son, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So notice what's going on here. The writers of the New Testament are saying that Jesus is not just a man. He's a perfect man. And they're saying that He's not just a perfect man. He is Holy God. Now, friends, this takes faith to believe. It seems in our minds that these two things can never kind of coexist in one person. And it takes faith to believe this, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. And so this Jesus, fully God, fully man, then laid down his life on the cross And why did he do that? Remember that word that we read earlier about propitiation? Jesus becomes the sacrifice 
for the sin of all those that would trust in him. Because remember, we are diseased. We're dead. There's nothing that we can do. We are awaiting final punishment, which is death row, where we are forever and finally banished from God's presence. That's how we are born in our natural state. And Jesus comes, the eternal son of God, come, becomes a man, lives a perfect life, obeys God the Father completely, and then lays down his life. He takes the electric chair. He takes the execution for us on the cross. But because he is more than just a man, but he is the eternally holy Son of God, he has enough righteousness to bear and satisfy the wrath of God against all sin. And so what Jesus is doing on the cross is he is satisfying the wrath of God against humanity. And then he doesn't stay dead, but as Reuben read for us at the beginning of the service, he rises again in victory. He is risen. He is alive. God raises up the Son. God the Father raises up God the Son. And now because Jesus has conquered death and sin, God then raises up those whom he saves with Jesus. Because Jesus is alive and has defeated death our foe, God then pours out his mercy and love on a great multitude of people who are dead in their sins and raises them up with Jesus. So do you see this? Don't miss this. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are dead in our sins God, in his great love, pours out that love and mercy on a great multitude of people in eternity past. He made a decision to do this. A great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he takes a whole host of people who could do nothing to commend themselves to him. They're dead in their sins. They're following the course of this world. And God pours out his mercy on them and he makes them alive with Christ. A picture of this is given for us very clearly in John chapter 11. I won't take the time to read it. I'll just summarize it for for you here briefly. It's the story of Jesus during his earthly life and ministry raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. You'd do well to read that story in John chapter 11 this afternoon. What's going on in John chapter 11? John, Jesus has a friend named Lazarus who is sick. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, our friend is sick, our, our brother is sick. Please, will you come and would you come and heal him because we know that you have the power to do so. And Jesus seems to kind of put them off. Like, no, nah, well, uh, in a little bit, in a little bit. And in the meantime, while Jesus is taking his own sweet time, Lazarus dies. And to emphasize that Lazarus is dead, the Bible says that he, in the King James Version, I love it, he stinketh, right? Just to kind of put that in there, just let us know. He's dead. He can't do anything. And Jesus gets to the tomb where Lazarus' body is decomposing. Lazarus is dead. 
And Lazarus is a kind of picture of every human being that is dead in their sins. What can dead people do? Nothing. And Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, and because of his great mercy, because of his love, Jesus says to the dead man in the tomb, Lazarus, get up. And God makes Lazarus alive. He brings a dead heart back to life. That's what God does. That's a picture of what God does for every person that he has made his own. He makes them alive. He brings them back to life in Christ. Because the punishment that should have been theirs is absorbed and removed in Jesus. Now he makes them alive. And notice then how he does that. Verses 8 and 9. The means. He doesn't just conk them over the head and say, now you're alive. Get with it now. Get with it. He does this through the means of faith. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This all-important word, this two words, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's look at verse 8 there at the beginning. Let's just kind of stare at it for a moment. We're saved by grace. This means that if you're a Christian, God has made you alive. We just made that point. Not because of anything noteworthy in you, but because of his mercy and great love. By grace, there was nothing good in you to commend you to God. And God decided to make you alive. But he makes you alive. He makes your dead heart alive. And then the first breath, the first beat, the first gift that he gives that new heart is faith. So remember how we said that to be dead in sin is to be enslaved by our passions, by our old heart, you might say? Well, conversely, when God makes us alive, immediately he gives us a new heart. And this new heart now has new desires. So remember in verses 1 through 3, our heart, when it was dead in sin, was, was following the course of this world. It was bent on ourselves and carrying out passions and we were enslaved. Now, Jesus has freed us from that slavery and has given us a new heart and this new heart has new desires. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And if you're a new creation, you get a new heart The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Jesus, God, makes us alive, and the gift of that new life is a new heart. And then faith is the natural response of a heart that has just been made alive. Listen to this verse by the Apostle John in 1 John, right at the end of the Bible, him sort of thinking about how this all works out. In Christ. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice the tenses and stare at it for a second. Because in this, 
is where grace, this is where grace is so powerful and so sweet and so free and such good news. It doesn't say everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ will be born again. It says they have been born again because here's the good news. If it were up to us to believe on our own outside of God, first acting on us, we would never make that decision because remember, what can dead people do? All dead people can do is stink. No, no, let's, let's, let's put a little... All dead people can do is stank. That's all we can do is stank. You stank. You, I got a couple teenage boys, and they stank. And they borrow my undershirts, and one wash won't get a teenage boy stank out. I'll tell you that much right now. Right? What can dead hearts do? Dead hearts can't believe. Something must happen to a dead heart for it to even believe. It is made alive. Lazarus is made alive. And the first beat of the new heart is belief. It's now trust. Now our eyes are open. Our heart is free. Our ears can hear. And we put our hope and our faith in Jesus. So we must put our hope in Jesus, but our only hope of putting our hope in Jesus is him first making us alive. Friends, that is, if you stare, right now you may be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not up to me. No, it's not primarily up to you. And I want you to see how good that news is, because if it were up to you, you would never make the decision on your own. But the glory of the gospel is that God, who is rich in mercy, pours out his love on a great host of people and makes them alive and gives them the very thing that he requires of them, which is faith. And so, friends, how do you know if that is you? Friends, do you hear this? Are you hearing this message right now? Is it making sense to you? Do you see the clarity of the gospel? Do you see the corner that the gospel backs us into so that we will finally not look within ourselves, but we must be forced to look outside of ourselves to a God who alone can save? And if you are hearing that even If it is offending you, I believe that is evidence that God is giving you ears to hear so that you too might breathe your first breath of faith and put your hope in Jesus. Now you're not relying on anything in you to commend yourself to God, but you're relying on the perfect God-man, the perfect man who laid down his life who rose again in victory, who absorbed God's judgment on your behalf, which is now extinguished. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are trusting in Jesus. And now, because God has enabled you, you are able to trust in him. Don't fret, don't worry, don't spend any time thinking about God's justice and all of this. Simply, if you are hearing these words and you know it to be true, look away from yourself and look to Jesus even now and believe. And be made his. So friends, how, how, (laughs) somebody asked me just recently, Brad, I want to become a Christian. What must I do to become a Christian? What must I do to be saved? And I, I really appreciated the question because I think it's actually a biblical question. 
But I actually think that the very nature of the question is giving evidence that God is, has, is drawing or already has drawn or has already made that person alive, right? So how we answer that question really reveals whether or not we understand what the Bible says about salvation. So the question is, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to become a Christian? The answer is not, well, here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to commit to start coming to church regularly. You need to read your Bible daily. You need to pray. You need to kind of maybe even repeat this prayer after me. And if you do those things, you will be saved. All those things are wonderful things to do. I think you should do them. But that's not the way the Bible answers that question. In fact, there was this, this Philippian man who was a jailer. And he was like the jail guard. And Paul and Silas were in jail. The Apostle Paul and Silas were thrown in jail in Acts chapter 16. And an angel shows up, causes an earthquake to come, busts open the door. Paul and Silas actually were singing hymns. And uh, they were singing hymns, and an angel broke open the door, and Paul, Paul and Silas were freed. And the Philippian jailer feared for his life because he realized that he would be killed for losing his prisoners. He sees Paul and Silas and they say, oh, fear, fear not. And he's just stricken with fear and wonder, realizing that God has miraculously done something. And he asks Paul and Silas and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't say, well, now that you know God is real, you need to try hard, Johnny. I don't, I don't think his name was Johnny, but you get the point. You need to commit to not be bad anymore. And you need to clean yourself up. And you need to come to church. And you need to do this, this, and this. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In other words, Paul is like a midwife. And that baby is born, and he spanks this little hiney, and he says, you've been born, now breathe. Right? Breathe. And the first breath of a heart that has been made aware of the reality of God's grace, then believes. Right? And so right now, if you're asking that question, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to be a Christian? I'm just coming along, slapping you on your spiritual hiney, just saying, dear friend, you were dead. The evidence that you were even asking that question, I believe, is evidence that God is making you alive. Don't look within yourself to commend anything to God. Look outside of yourself. Look to him. Look to the God-man who lived the perfect life, laid down his life, bore God's wrath, satisfied it, rose again, and now who is alive, and breathe and put your hope in trust. Trust in him, friends. That's the gospel. And then what does he say? We end with this, verse 10. Why does he do all this? Why does God do all this? To make good people so that we can be good little church people? No, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. What does the Bible mean by good works? Remember, we just made a huge point 
that we're not saved by anything good in us. We're saved by what God has done in Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. But we're not saved by our works. But now because God has saved us and given us life, we are now saved for good works so that we would bring glory to God, so that we as new creations in Christ would bring glory to God. So what are good works? Is it, is it helping people? Is it social justice? Well, certainly that's part of it. But I believe at its core, it's, it's fruit. It's the actions of a new heart. So if you are a Christian, to be created for good works means that you were dead in your sin, but now you have been made alive by God for God. So where we were once unable to obey God and his ways, we are now enabled because we have a new heart. With a new heart comes new desires. And not only do we are now we now enabled to follow God, our heart's desire is to follow God. And in fact, that's where true joy comes. Now this by no means means that if you're a Christian that you are now all of a sudden perfectly able to obey God. Friends, that is not the case. One of my favorite British theologians, I quote him often here. His name is William Arnaud. He lived back in the 1800s and he says that the difference between a Christian and a person who's not a Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that a Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin, whereas a non-Christian is still dead in sin and is taking sin side against the dreaded God. Nobody in this room, even if they've been a Christian for 50 years, even the most mature among us does not still stumble in many ways, as James says in James chapter 3. And if you think anybody in this room has really got it together and you think they're perfect, come talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you that they're not. I know they're not. I'm their pastor and they are not. And I know that's not the case because I know my own heart and I know that I stumble in many ways. In fact, I am the chief. I am the tribal leader of still jacked up people. Right? But God now gives us a new heart where we are enabled. So now he changes our whole perspective and we can follow him And now our life is reoriented and we're created for him. And so you're a young soldier in the military. You you don't exist primarily to be a stud on the PT test or to get a ranger tab or a CIB or to be some guy that rockets up and gets promoted early and is like, you know, an E7 when you're 25. That's not your primary role in life. God has put you there. He's made you alive. He's put you there so that you might be a display of his grace to other people who are still dead. And God will take your light and he will use it as the means by which he brings the cure to people that are still dead. Maybe you are a a businessman in Columbus and you've been clocking away at Synovus and Aflac forever and and your heart is dull, and you're a believer in Jesus, but you've become kind of dull to the beauty of the mercy of the gospel, and you're just kind of checking a box, and you're just banking up your retirement, 
You're just waiting for football season to start so that you can hang out in the foyer and talk to guys about football and your life and the reality of the, oh, you're a Christian, but the reality of the beauty of the gospel is dim in your soul. You need to hear these words, not just as Brad preaching the gospel again and again and again, but you need it to light afresh the flame of grace in your soul so that you will realize that God has put you in that desk, in that cubicle, in that office, in that place with those people so that through your life, God might use it. He might use it in some way to be the means by which he brings the cure to other dead souls. And you, brother, you need to reject your passivity and you need to get kicked in the rear by the grace of the gospel and you need to light afresh your flame for the glory of God and make your life not about your comfortable existence but about being a witness for God's glory in your sphere of influence. Maybe you're a housewife raising three kids under the age of five. Oh, dear sister, first thing I want to do, I just want to hug you. And I'm just, I'm like, oh, man, you're, like, you're the strongest among us. You feel like the weakest, but you're the strongest among us. And you are getting, you're just worn out by day after day of children that are hard to discipline and a husband who seems checked out and all the Facebook super moms out there whose kids are sleeping all the way through the night and eating kale for breakfast. And, and it's everything within you, just not to punch the computer, computer screen every time you see it, right? And then you see that stinking super mom at the Bible study at Crosspoint, and you, ah, you want to just punch her in the face, right? <laughs> <laughs> and your heart is weary, and it's tired and beaten down. And you need to hear afresh the good news of the gospel. And you need to realize that God didn't make you alive so that you could be terribly frustrated with your mother status or your husband or your kids. But he, in his divine sovereignty, put you in that family, in that marriage, gave you those children so that through you, you might be a missionary to your own children and preach the gospel to them. Maybe you are wrestling with infertility and you're a young woman in this room that desperately wants to have children. Or maybe you're a single person in this room and you desperately want to be married. Do you think all of this is outside of God's sovereign plan in some way? God wants to do more than encourage you in your misery. He wants to use your salvation 
and then you living in your circumstance to be the good works that he uses to shine the beauty of the gospel to show a world around you that there's something better than marriage. There's something better than children. There's something better than the white picket fence. There's something better than the 401k. There's something better than perfect health. There's something better than all these things. There is new life in Jesus because the thing that really matters friends is not our comfort in these 80 years the thing that really matters is whether or not God has made us alive and if you have that you have all that there is to have and God wants to use you friend and your life to bring the cure to others so let the gospel light afresh the flame of love and passion and gratefulness in your heart so that you might be his workmanship that God prepared before for you to walk in to the glory of God and to the joy of your soul. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, what must you do? You you must make a decision. You must say, listen, I don't understand everything that this guy said, but I know I'm sick. I know I'm sick. And something must happen to me. If you are realizing that, I think that's very strong evidence that God may be giving you life so that you can maybe for the first time look finally away from yourself and to Jesus. Not because you're stronger than anybody else or smarter than anybody else or but simply because he is giving you the very thing he requires of you, which is faith and hope. And you believe in Jesus. You put your hope in him. Do that even now. Just say something as simple in your own heart. Lord, I've trusted in myself all these years, and it has gotten me nowhere, and I realize now that it's gotten me nowhere because I have been dead in my sin. I've been sick with the universal disease. Now, for the first time, I realize that my only hope is you, and and so I am going to breathe hope, belief in you. Jesus, I put my hope in what you have done in the cross. Forgive me for my sins. I believe I put my trust in you. Friends, say that even now if you haven't believed that. Say that even now. And be his. And then be brought into a family, a bunch of other dusty pardoned rebels who are now made alive trying to work it out and don't just say that prayer and then never show up again come and be part of a bible believing church whether it's this one or some other church come and be part and be part of a family that lives together lives out the purpose of this salvation for the glory of God and for our joy do that even now if friends if you're making that decision for the first time today I do not leave this room before we're done singing and praying. In just a moment, we're going to sing a couple songs. And then Robert's going to come and one of our pastors is going to come read a verse out of the Bible, which will be kind of our end, our benediction. Do not leave this room today without talking to somebody that you, you want to trust in Jesus today. There'll be pastors down front. I'd love for you to come down and speak to one of us or just anybody that you know to be a Christian. Just say, I, I am putting my hope in Jesus today for the first time. Because he has made me alive.
And we'd love to talk with you about how now you can live that out with a family of God like this one. Let's pray. Father, do what only you can do. Light afresh the flame of the gospel in the hearts of your children that came in believing. Reorient our affections so that we would bring glory to you through our lives. And for my friends that came into this room unbelieving, Lord, I beg of you to give them what only you can give them, which is new life. Lord, I pray that you would raise them up with Christ. Our hearts are initially offended that it is that we are completely dependent on you. But if we think about it long enough, we realize that is actually why the good news is so good. Because if it were up to us, we would never come to you on our own. And so, Lord, would you, by your great love and mercy, make unbelievers in this room alive and would their first breath of that new life be faith and trust in what you did through Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. I pray that you would do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.